You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Today we're looking at the window into a pastor's life. That's what I've titled this message. It is a window into a pastor's life. Uh, many pastors in ministry today are lonely. In fact, statistics show that uh, being, being a pastor can be one of the loneliest jobs out there. Everybody expects you to be the one that's ministering and pouring out to everybody when in, in, in often is the case a pastor is in desperate need himself of somebody pouring into him and somebody uh, being there for him. And so we're going to see that today in Paul's life. The Apostle Paul, the, the amazing church planter, the missionary of, of, that, that is just incredible in my mind's eye. He's, he's one of the most impactful men that was used by God in the, in, in the church. And here he is. He's opening up his heart to us. He's allowing us to see into a window of a pastor's life. And we're going to see that today. It was Lord Balfour, the English Prime Minister also influential man in establishing the state of Israel who said this. He said, the best thing to to give your enemy, the best thing to give to your enemy is forgiveness. To an opponent, tolerance. To a friend, your heart. To your child, a good example. To a father, reverence. To your mother, conduct that will make her proud of you. To yourself, respect. To all men, charity. Here in the book of 2 Corinthians, we certainly see an example of forgiveness, of tolerance, of friendship, of respect, of love. But what makes this example so amazing is the context behind this letter. Realizing the concept or the circumstances in which this letter is written. You see, Paul is having to defend his integrity in 2 Corinthians, the first eight or first seven chapters of it, anyways. He's been under attack by a faction of the Corinthian church that was under the sway of false teaching. These false teachers had infiltrated the Corinthian church and they were spreading rumors about Paul. That never happens, right? The Bible's not relevant for today, is it? (laughs) Doesn't sound like it to me. Not. Well, the attack of these false teachers was a three-pronged attack. They were attacking his credibility as a minister. First of all, in the moral area, they were saying that the reason for Paul's continuous suffering, look, the guy's continually suffering, and the reason for it is, well, he's got secret sin in his life. That's what it is. He's got some sort of thing going on behind the curtain that nobody knows about, and that's why God is causing him, afflicting him with this suffering. Boy, I guess they didn't read about the life of Jesus, did they? <laughs> a life of uh, horrible suffering there at the end for sin. Relationally, they accused Paul also of being insincere. They were like, yeah, also, not only morally is he secretly in sin, but also relationally, he's lying to us. He's acting like he wants to come and visit, but he, he's not coming through with it. And then thirdly, theologically, they accused Paul of twisting God's word to get what he wanted. So that was the satanic attempt, the satanic attack that would come against Paul to destroy his influence and his leadership in the church. And this is what prompted Paul to write 2 Corinthians. In this letter, we see a window, and in chapter 2 specifically, a window into pastor's life. Last time we were uh, in the book, 
the last half of chapter 1, we looked at a portrait of a pastor's heart tonight, window into a pastor's life. We start off with the first area. There are three main areas in this chapter we'll look at tonight where Paul lets us see into his life. The first of those is the need to have tough conversations. A pastor is someone who needs to be able to have tough conversations. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. We read, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Verse 2, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. In other words, your joy is my joy, is what he's saying. Verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Wow. This is a window into a pastor's life. Notice the pastor's joy in verses 1 through 3. Paul had originally planned to visit the Corinthians twice. We know that from chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, if you want to glance at it. But Paul changed his travel plan so that he could come and visit them on his way up to Macedonia. But then he was going to come back down through and visit them twice. Well, that second visit never happened, it seems, because of the painful experience of the first stop. You see, it's believed that Paul wrote them, or he visited them on that first visit, passed through and went up, and then because of the painful experience, he wrote them this severe letter that he mentioned in verse 4, a letter that was written in much anguish and with tears. Paul decided that he just wasn't ready to see the church again. He wasn't ready to go through that again, and he decided they needed time to process his tough words. They needed time to show repentant hearts. And so Paul, in his discernment, he says, you know what? I've written them a very severe letter. It's not time for me to stop in and see them again. It's just not the right circumstances yet. And that was his reasoning for not coming to see them again. And there in verse 3, Paul makes it very clear that he hates to be grieved by the very ones who should bring him the most joy. Catch that, church. He says, hey, surely you guys know that my greatest joy comes from you being joyful. When I see you filled with joy, that makes me joyful, Paul's saying. What a beautiful insight into a pastor's life. Did you know that a pastor's joy is only complete when his people are themselves filled with the goodness and the grace of God? Oh, nothing blesses a pastor more than to see a child of God walking in the grace and the goodness of his God. Seeing joy as a byproduct of their relationship with Jesus. It blesses a pastor's heart. Much like a father, much like a mother, whose joy overflows when they see their child blessed, when they see them content. That's the heart that Paul is showing us here. You know, it's kind of like a a Christmas celebration in a way. If you're a parent, you've probably gone through a transition in your life. 
You know, when we were kids, we, we loved Christmas because it was about us. You know, it was, it was Christmas, you know. What do I get? What's, what are we going to do this year, you know, for Christmas? And I remember myself getting up four in the morning, you know, and me and my, my sisters and my brother, we'd be camped out in front of the little heater unit that we had that blew hot air out of the base of it, you know. We'd all be sitting there like, what do you think we got this year, you know. We were so excited, and we'd go in there, you know, 5.30. Hey, Mom, Dad, you guys ready? They're like, what are you doing, you know. Get back in bed. And of course, it was a moment of excitement for us because it was about me. But through the years, things have changed. You know this if you're a parent. Now, Christmas is exciting for me, not because of what I think I'm going to get, which is probably some ties and underwear, you know, and stuff like that, you know, which is great, but I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but, you know. But, but isn't it amazing to watch the kids? You watch the kids, man, and they're just... Oh, man, it just fills your heart with joy to see their hearts be happy. They're blessed, and it fills you with joy. Listen, get this, church. Our Father in heaven has that same joy in his heart. He's filled with that same kind of joy when he sees you trusting in Christ, his Son. You might be in the midst of suffering tonight. You might be in the midst of a really difficult time, but when you say, God, I'm trusting in you, Lord Jesus, I know you're going to get me through. And, and you may not be happy, but you've got joy because you know who holds your future. And God is looking at you and he is beaming because his heart overflows with joy. Did you know that even the angels, the Bible tells us, they rejoice in heaven when somebody gets right with God. It blesses their hearts because it blesses God's heart. And it blesses a pastor's heart. Not only do we see the pastor's joy, we also see the pastor's love in verse 4. And sometimes it's a tough love. Notice the source, the motive for the tough words that Paul shared in his letter. It was his love for the Corinthians that made him do it. It was his love for them. This is probably the most convicting part of this chapter for me. And, and it may very well be for you as well. Did you know that the opposite of love, church, is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of love is indifference, not caring. You know, a lack of love means that you let it go. You ignore the problem. You don't care enough to to actually go and to address it. You put on your fake face and you, you fake it until you make it. Man, how many Christians today are living a fake life? Putting on a facade, pre- presenting themselves as if everything's okay. And faking it till they make it in their marriage, in their family, in their workplace. And it stinks. It stinks. That's exactly what Satan wants. Satan loves it when we don't love others enough to have the courage to sit down and have the tough conversations. The problem with that approach, the fake it till you make it approach, is that it leads to destruction eventually. This can be the reason that people who seem to have been married happily for many years, they suddenly find themselves in the middle of a divorce. Because things that were issues that should have had those tough conversations, instead they were just enabled. Listen, if we only knew the definition of real love, love 
that doesn't look out only for its own interest, but we love the other person in that relationship enough to say, you know what? You're not doing this to me. I love you too much. I care about your soul too much to let you do this to me. And so we're going to have a tough conversation. We're going to sit down and we're going to unpack this and we're going to biblically look at it. And I'm not going to let you get away with this anymore in my life. It's a tough thing to do, but Paul does it. Why? Because he loves the people that God has called him to minister to. The convicting thing here for us is that we often do not seek the well-being of others. We seek our own well-being and we think, hey, the best thing for me in this situation is just to look the other way. The best thing for me in this situation is I I, I just don't want to take on the pain right now. I don't want to deal with it right now. And so I'm just going to become indifferent to this. I'm going to allow it to continue. The question that we must ask ourselves tonight, if we're going to apply the Bible to our lives, is do I love the person God has put in my life enough to stop allowing sin to go on? Paul has a true pastor's heart. Paul has a pure heart. Because of his love for the church in Corinth, he had to have these kind of tough conversations Maybe you're an employer tonight. Maybe you work with people and you've been looking the other way. You've been saying, you know what, I know that's a conversation I've got to have, but I don't want to do it because I know what it's going to bring. I know what it's going to cost. Hey, you need to get alone in your prayer closet and ask God to fill you with a heart of love for those people that are working for you, for those people that are working with you. Because it's only when God gives us true love for a person, when God gives us pure love for a person, that we can actually do the tough things that need to be done. Hey, I know about that. We, we have a staff here at Calvary Chapel, Paris. And, and guess what? We're all sinners, including me. We all make mistakes. And sometimes I've got to sit down and have tough conversations And sometimes they've got to sit down and have a tough conversation with me. But listen, we need to do it. Sure, we need to examine our own lives first. We need to make sure we're not committing the same sin. We need to make sure we're not causing the other person to sin. But when we've examined our life, when we've removed the plank from our own eye, so to speak, hey, then it's time to get in there. And it's time to address things. We need to do it in love. We need to do it because of love. We need to have the tough conversations. Lord, please help us to do that. We just pray right now. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be people that enable others to continue in their sin. Lord, give us strength, give us power that we don't have to be people who have tough conversations out of our pure love for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The next area that we're shown a window into in a pastor's life is the necessity of forgiveness. Verses 5 through 11. Pick it up with me. In verse 5, he says, But if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. What, what is Paul talking about? Well, it seems that he's referring specifically here to the person who was the cause of the incident during Paul's first visit on his way up to Macedonia. He's saying, hey, look, this person that caused hurt to me 
Well, they hurt the church even more by their actions. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. You see, we're a family. We're a family. Hey, we're dysfunctional, got to admit it, you know. I look out and I see some of you dysfunctional uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters. We don't like, we don't have to like each other, right? We just got to love each other. No, I'm just kidding. That's a bunch of baloney, by the way. Not going to pull the old bless your heart thing right now. But hey, when we hurt leadership, we're hurting the church. You know, when somebody comes to our church from another church and the first thing that they begin to share with me is about all the problems the other pastor had, you know what I know? I know that when they leave our church, they're going to be saying the same things about me. And I always just go, you know, I'm like, all right, let me hear it, you know, because it hurts. It hurts. I hurt for that brother. I hurt for the church, and God hurts for the church. Because when we cause grief, listen, when we've been caused grief, we're actually causing division, and it hurts the church. According to Proverbs chapter 6, God hates those that cause division. In Romans chapter 16, Paul warned the church. He said, hey, get away from those people that cause division in the church. Watch out for them. It seems to be here in verse 5, the majority of the Corinthian church, they had since exercised church discipline in this person's life. And it seems to have run its course. It has produced its desired end. Listen, church discipline, those tough conversations a pastor has to have, he doesn't do it just because he hates you and wants to get you out of his church. He does it because he wants you to repent. And that was, that's what happened in the Corinthian church. This guy, it seems, was, had church discipline in his life. And it produces repentance. Check out verse 6. It says, This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So they inflicted a punishment by the majority of the church there. This means that there was still a faction that was against it, but the majority of the church exercised discipline on the, on the man, they, 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 they said, listen, we're not going to meet with you until you've repented. And, and, and so this guy repented, and yet they had not forgiven this guy yet. They hadn't gone to him and said, hey, brother, we noticed that you've changed. We want you back. We, we want to bring you back in. In verse 8, it says, therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive, anything I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Hey guys, we live in a society today where forgiveness is not a virtue that is highly esteemed unless we're talking about forgiving ourselves. How interesting is that? Hey, we talk about forgiving ourselves. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, preach it. Amen. But we talk about forgiving that brother that sinned against us, and everyone's like, what? I don't got a problem with that. Forgiveness of ourselves is very popular in psychology today. It's a worldly philosophy. 
Well, I'm not disagreeing with the concept to a certain extent. I think the Bible teaches us more about the important concept of forgiving other people. Forgiveness in of myself is usually a byproduct. Listen, it's a byproduct of understanding the promises that I have in Jesus Christ. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not condemned. I, I, I can't even condemn myself in Christ Jesus because he, he stepped in and took that condemnation for me. In other words, it's through understanding the gospel, the good news about Jesus that I truly am freed from guilt and the shame of my past. Today's self-help books, today's modern psychology encourages us to put the blame on others. Put the blame on the way we were raised. Put the blame on what happened to us. Now, I'm in no way saying that those people don't share in the responsibility. And I believe with all my heart, they will stand before the Lord for their actions. But when we always put the blame on everybody else, sin's been around since the Garden of Eden, if you don't remember. That's what Adam did, right? It was the woman. And the woman was like, it was the snake. And the snake was like, yeah, it was me. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was just evil, so he got... <laughs> God's like, yeah, you're, we're taking your legs away and you're, you're crawling in the dust, you know. Ouch. But, but listen, when we continue to pass the blame and it's never us that are responsible, at some point, we have to realize God does hold us responsible for our actions. But when we push the blame, it creates more problems. One of those problems is that it produces unforgiveness towards others in our hearts. Listen, unforgiveness then goes on. Unforgiveness charges a high price that our society is paying today. You see, unforgiveness is the root of bitterness, hatred, anger, revenge, even murder. Forgiveness is a gift that God gives to us. Man, how our society would change if instead of holding up celebrity culture and idolizing, you know, greed and materialism, we idolized forgiveness. We said, hey, let's teach this virtue to every kid that comes through public school. And let's source it, let's place it in the most powerful context it can ever be put in, and that is that the Son of God died for the sins of the world to, to be able to offer true forgiveness that actually means something to a world that is hurting. Forgiveness restores relationships. Forgiveness is the root of freedom, peace, joy. Forgiveness releases us from the prison of anger and revenge. And forgiveness for sin is only found through the payment for sin from the sinless Son of God who gave His life as a substitute and a sacrifice for all of my sin, for all of your sin. Notice there in verse 7, you see the comfort forgiveness brings. Forgiving someone who has wronged us when they're repentant, it brings a comforting effect. Have you ever disciplined your child? And at the end of it, because it's a godly sorrow, that discipline produces godly sorrow in their lives, and they look at you and they say, Daddy, I'm sorry for doing that. Will you forgive me? And you say, yes, son. Yes, daughter, I forgive you. 
Oh, what do they do, man? They jump in your arms and you're hugging them, you're loving them, and they're feeling those waves of comfort come over them as they realize, hey, all the guilt that I had, it's gone now. It's gone now. I've been forgiven. The peace, the comfort, and that's also what we see there in verses 8 through 11 is the fruit of forgiveness, guys. The fruit of forgiveness. This is powerful stuff. Look at verses 8. We see that there's unity. When that man's sorrow that's washing over him is is forgiven him, he realizes, wow, I'm back. I'm part of the family again. I'm back in. I'm back into the fellowship that's taking place and the love. Notice the joy that is the fruit of forgiveness in this scenario. Notice the peace that forgiveness brings. And notice also in verse 11 the strength that it brings against the enemy. Notice there, verse 11, what Paul says. He says, We don't want that Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I wonder how many churches Satan has taken advantage of because of unforgiveness. Because of simple unforgiveness. I want to go into really quickly three things, three ways that Satan works against us as individual believers and as a church. Number one, Satan works against us in that he wants us to doubt the Word of God. That's at the source of Satan's strategy. He wants you to doubt God's words. 2 Corinthians 11, you're in that book. Turn over to chapter 11 very quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, same book, chapter 11. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ can be corrupted by the deceptiveness of Satan. He comes in, he asks the question, has God really said that, Eve? Did God really say not to eat the fruit of this tree? You know, He's very deceptive, asking the question, what does he want? He wants us to accept his word instead of God's word. If he can get us to doubt God's word, guess what? He has just disarmed you from your only method of discerning truth. And he takes away your most powerful weapon, the word of God, church. Psalm 33 verse 4 says this, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. Secondly, Satan wants you to doubt the character of God. Not, not only doubt his word, he wants you to doubt God's character. He wants to destroy the work of God in your life. He wants to do that by getting you to take the shortcut, take the easy way out. Take the way that doesn't have to have character like God has. He wants to lead you out of the will of God. You see, Satan wants you to think that God doesn't have your best interest in heart, at heart. That's the furthest thing from the truth, guys. God does have your best interest at heart. That's an all-out lie from Satan that he plants in your mind that he would think, hey, God doesn't have my best interest in mind. Satan wants us to believe that God is withholding something good from us, but it's just the opposite, church. Oh, if we only knew the heart of our Father God for us, we would be blown away. We would be overwhelmed by His love for us. Psalm 33, 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. 
The third way that Satan works against believers and against churches is he wants us to become ineffective. And that's what unforgiveness does. Unforgiveness makes a church ineffective, makes a Christian ineffective. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Go back to, to, to uh, chapter 2 there in your Bibles and look at verse 12 and 13 with me. Paul writes, he's continuing on, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So notice there that Satan was actually distracting Paul from being completely effective in Troas. Okay, this whole situation of unforgiveness at the church in Corinth, it was causing Paul to have turmoil, anguish, anxiety. He couldn't concentrate. And so he leaves this effective door that God had opened for him in Troas to preach the gospel. And he goes. That's exactly what Satan wants. Satan wants to impede us by distracting us from being effective. He wants... And with us, he wants to weigh us down with our sin, condemn us with sins from the past. He wants to impede our walk in service for God. He wants to overwhelm us with anxiety and fear so that we're paralyzed and we won't step out in faith. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when the Satan comes against us in these ways? Well, the Bible tells us it's simple. The Bible tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. That's James 4, 7 and 8. It says, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're to combat Satan with the word of God. So the next time you're sitting there and Satan throws your past sin in your face and he's like, see, you're no good. You're not able to be used anymore. Look what happened in your life in the past. You can say, you know what, Satan? Romans 8, 1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So shut up. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, right? We've got, we've got to be respectful. We want to be respectful. But at the same time, we use the word of God to combat him. Because that's what has been given to us, guys. You see, the Word of God is powerful. It's a two-edged sword. It not only works inwardly in us, but it works outwardly to combat lies. So listen, church. The next time that you're tempted and you're sitting at home on a Friday night and your cell phone is lighting up because all of your buddies want you to go out and party, and they've got the drugs, and they've got the alcohol, and they've got the hookups, and they're tempting you. You know what you need to do? You need to turn on some praise and worship music. You need to get out the Bible, and you need to get into the Word. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. Is it going to be the hardest thing you did? Yeah, it's going to be hard. The next time the temptation gets thrown in your face, you have to run from that and run to the Word. It's not easy, but that's how we fight. That's how we fight in the Christian world. Psalm 91 verse 4 says that He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. 
Shield and sword, guys. The word of God. That's the way it works. Shield you from temptation and fight back against the lie. Number three, the third area, the third area that Paul lets us into his pastor's life in, verses uh, 12 through 17, is the difficulty of ministry and the inevitability of triumph in Christ. So he's balancing two things. There's, there's difficulty, there's discouragement, but on the other hand, there's triumph in Christ. Look at Paul's difficulty in ministry with me first. He said there in, in verse 12 again, Furthermore, I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel. A door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. This is Paul's way of letting the Corinthians know that he's been discouraged, okay? He, he's discouraged at this point. This was a difficult time for him. The door that was opened to him means that there was a great opportunity to preach the gospel in Troas. It was a divine appointment. It was a ministry door opened by the Lord in that community. But because Paul is so distraught over the affairs in the Corinthian church, he couldn't fully take advantage of it. He didn't have peace. He didn't have any rest in his spirit, and so he left. But get this, here's where the grace of God kicks in. If you read Acts chapter 20, <laughs> while Paul was in Macedonia, he, or while he was there, he ends up, there, there was a church that was planted because of his preaching, okay? He just didn't get to stay there very long to see, to see that uh, come, work come to fruition. But he leaves. So this is a window into his pastor's life. He's being open. He's being honest about this discouraging time. He could have been there preaching the gospel. Instead, he was so discouraged. He was so distraught. He leaves, heads to Macedonia. And in Macedonia, we know that he met up with Titus. Titus was on his way to see him with a report of the affairs in Corinth. We're almost done, guys. Let's go to, let's go to Paul's victory now in and through Christ. Wrapping this up. It says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. It's as if Paul has this light bulb moment. He goes, wait a second. Hold on a second. Yeah, I was discouraged, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. That word diffuses simply means spreads out. He spreads the, the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Funny story real quick, just, just on the side. Speaking of fragrance and, and aroma and how that gets spread out, you know. The other day we were getting ready for church in the morning and, no, it was, we were just getting ready for the day, but Rebecca, is, we were both in the restroom there and getting ready and she takes her spray, you know, and she sprayed it over both shoulders, didn't get any on her, but it hit me. I'm standing behind her. I'm like, oh, what is this? Like, I don't want to smell like this all day. You know, it's like, it's embarrassing. But that's, that's the idea that Paul's talking about. It's diffusing the fragrance. It's like you spend time with Jesus. Hey, then you go your way. You smell like him, in a sense. You're spreading that, that sense of joy, that sense of relationship wherever you go. Verse 16, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling, that word peddling, he's talking about a huckster, he's talking about a con artist, a street hawker, somebody that deceives people into buying a cheap imitation. 
You, ever, you, you guys have heard of Oakley sunglasses? Well, have you ever heard of Folkley's? Okay, that's the cheap imitation. Five bucks in Tijuana. I remember getting them as a Marine a few times. That's what he's talking about here. Hucksters. These people peddling the word of God, he says. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Listen, it's as if Paul suddenly remembers an important fact. Yeah, he was momentarily defeated. He was momentarily discouraged in his life in Troas. But you know what? Because Paul is in Christ, it becomes, just by default, an eternal victory. (laughs) I love it. Acts chapter 20, the church was planted in Troas. Listen, the idea here that Paul is talking about is of a Roman triumph. You've probably heard this before if you've been studying the Bible for any amount of time. A Roman triumph is the picture Paul is painting here in verses 14, 15, and 16. And the Roman triumph was a parade for a victorious Roman general. This was a once-in-a-lifetime event because there was very specific criteria for there to be a Roman triumph. What was the criteria? Well, it first of all had to be a victory of more than 5,000 enemy troops. It had to be in a foreign land. And it had to be a victory that actually won new territory for the empire of Rome, for the glory of Rome. Something that added to and built up the glory of Rome. If those parameters were met, then that triumph would happen. And that triumph was an amazing event. Everybody would come out to it. First, there would be this parade of state officials. And then followed by the Senate of Rome. And they would walk through the streets of the capital there. And they would be followed by trumpeters that would call the people out. Then the spoils from the conquered land would come through. Followed by these ginormous pictures that were painted of the landscapes where the battles were fought. And models of the forts and the citadels that were conquered. Then after them would come all of, or then would come a white bull for the sacrifice that they would give. And then would come all of the captive princes, the leaders of the nation that was conquered. And then after them would come all the rest of the prisoners. They would all be in chains and they would be going to a prison sentence and to death. After them came the priests who had incense burners and they would swing them so that this fragrance was diffused throughout the city. And last of all came the general himself. In all of his trappings, he was decked out in a purple robe. He had a big crown that was being held above his head by a man walking or riding in his chariot next to him. And, and this was the man who was praised because he was responsible for the victory and for the glory of Rome. That's the picture, guys. Jesus is that general. God is painting for us a picture in this passage that Jesus has won the war. Jesus took over the new territory. He took all the demons and, and, and all these evil people captive. And they, they, because of their rebellion, hey, the fragrance of that parade to them, it's death, man. They realize it's over for us. But that fragrance to us is life. Because we realize, hey, in the, in the end of the scheme of things, hey, we have won. We are walking in victory. The conclusion tonight, conclusion for this message is that God uses his people to spread the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus wherever we go, guys.
We can't lose. Hey, you might have a setback. You might be discouraged. You might be distraught, anxious. You might be going through something that you feel like, man, I just got defeated. I just got it handed to me by the devil. But you know what? Be encouraged tonight because you can't lose. You cannot lose. You are always led in triumph in Christ Jesus. He is the general who won the war. And so we carry in us, guys, the aroma, the fragrance of life. And Jesus wants to spread that life around. He wants to spread it to as many people as we come in contact with. But listen, if we don't have that aroma because we're not spending time in our relationship with Christ, then how are we going to affect these people? How are we going to spread the good news? But listen, to those that are in rebellion against God, we stink. There's no other way to put it. We're like a stench to people that are rebelling in God. They're like, man, why you got to rain on my parade? Why you got to be the party pooper here, Christian? That's what we are to the world. We're kind of getting in the way, they think, of you know, them getting to do what they want to do. But that's not the truth. The truth is, hey, we want, to, we, want to, we want to rescue. We want to diffuse the fragrance of life. But to them, they're discerning it as a fragrance of death because of where their hearts are at. It's kind of like the difference between lavender essential oil and patchouli essential oil. You know? I have a friend that likes to wear patchouli. And every time he's around, you're like, whoa, what is that, man? Is it, we got a hippie around here or something, man? You know? Then you got that lavender, and it just, you feel like going to sleep, just peaceful, you know. <sighs> I just know because my wife has that. I don't use that stuff, but. <laughs> Let's remember who we are in Christ, church. Let's remember that everywhere we go, we're diffusing an aroma. And we cannot be defeated. Paul asked the question who's sufficient for these things? Hey, we're not. We can't do this. We cannot do this on our own, church. But Christ can. Jesus Christ is victorious. Amen. Let's pray.